2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a new podcast that I think you should try. It's done by my old friend, Brooke Gladstone, two-time guest on the Long Form Podcast, host of On the Media, genuinely uh, one of my favorite people in the world to talk to about journalism. And Brooke has a new series. It's going through the On the Media feed, and it is uh, not journalism about journalism. It is journalism about eviction. Brooke has teamed up with Pulitzer Prize winning author Matthew Desmond. He's got lots of stories on long form. And together, they're taking a look at eviction in America. In Indianapolis, they meet with landlords in Chicago. They look at the legacy of racist housing policies. And in Richmond, Atlanta, and New York, they evaluate potential solutions, try their best to understand uh, the crisis for what it is and what it isn't. Brooke and Matt grapple with what we think we know and what we definitely don't know about America's eviction crisis. The series is fantastic. It's ambitious. Brooke is the best. Subscribe to On The Media right now, wherever you get this podcast. And one more show I'd like you to try while you're sitting around in your podcast app, flipping around, looking for something new to listen to. It's called The TED Interview, and it's hosted by Chris Anderson, the head of TED. Every episode, Chris dives deeper into the ideas from the most compelling TED speakers, Susan Cain, David Brooks, Amanda Palmer, uh, all kinds of folks. They're in their second season now. The first season is already out, obviously, because that's how uh, seasons and chronology works. But if you have watched these TED Talks, uh, if you've gotten something out of them, go check out the TED interview. You will get a whole lot more also available wherever you are listening to this podcast, which begins right now. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky of the Longform Podcast. Pleasure to see you guys. Hi, Aaron. Hi. What have you uh, gotten in the way of a guest this week? Uh, this week, I talked to Alex Marr. Um, she wrote a book a few years ago that was about um, various forms of modern American witchcraft practice. Um, it's an experiential book. But um, she, in a more broad sense, writes a lot about subculture and the human experience. Um, she wrote a pretty recent Wired story about the inventor of, I don't want to use the wrong terminology here, cyborg might not be the right terminology, an android, uh, the uh, the parent of an android. And um, it's a pretty incredible story. In fact, it 
if I remember it in five years, I think I'll probably think it was fiction, not nonfiction. It has that kind of almost too perfect to be true. It's about this man's family and his ambitions and his obsessive um, goals with this robot, which eventually surpasses him and remains young as he grows old. Um, it really stuck with me as a story. It's such so a good story. I wanted to talk to her about that and all the reporting she's done in the last few years. Yeah, I feel like she has a very distinct kind of story. Like, I feel like all the Alex Marr stories are only stories that could be done by Alex Marr. She does a pretty heavy investment, I would say, in each one of these stories. So she's not like someone who's like flying away and like dashing out a story. Um, her life is kind of a series of long-term bets on some of these topics. Um, really interesting conversation. You know what else is interesting? Reading. <laughs> During the summer in particular... Evan's cringing. Max, so I didn't know you were into reading. <laughs> you guys, the thing I was thinking about doing in my summer is uh, reading. I was going to read this summer. How do you figure out what to read? Go to readthissummer.com. It's uh, put on by MailChimp, and it is a group of authors that MailChimp and Jenna Wortham, our old friend, are uh, bringing to the Decatur Book Festival this year. All kinds of incredible authors that all be down there speaking, and the idea is that you go to readthissummer.com, check out the books, start reading them, and then you can go to the Decatur Book Festival and hear them talk about them. Thank you to MailChimp for everything, for all the newsletters in the world. And for doing stuff like this, which is just like uh, genuinely good. And now here's Aaron with Alex Marr. Welcome, Alex Marr. Thanks for having me. Um, when you replied, you said, uh, I'm working on a book. Is the book you're working on uh, public knowledge or a secret at this point? Um, there's a sort of, you know, one line summary of the book that's out there, but otherwise I'm not talking about it too much. I will say it's a beast. Oh my God. It's just been a grueling, gargantuan amount of research. What's the one-line description? The one-line is um, it uses the story of a killing committed by a 15-year-old girl back in the 80s in the Midwest to talk about uh, what I'm calling radical forgiveness. Mm. So it starts with the crime and sort of goes off from there. And people's lives collide in an interesting way because of this one act of violence. But it's just, it has a lot more in common with my long-form stories and that approach than, than with Witches of America. I was going to say, the reason I asked about your book is when I was reading Witches of America, I, um, I was thinking about like how like long in your life writing that book occupied it's sort of like a weird like secret life you're leading while you're doing a book like this i know a lot of writers would say writing books always like having a secret life but this is like a very literal secret life it did feel like an actual secret life i, I mean so i think that book from conception to finish was probably about two and a half years and during that time my close friends and family knew sort of the you know, on paper version of what this project was about. But initially, the idea was I was going to go out and I was going to capture some sort of snapshot or portrait of the witchcraft movement in this country or the pagan movement. And that sounded very journalistic and sort of from uh, arm's length. I'm not a confessional writer, you know, whatever that means to different people. Um, so I thought, yeah, I'm not even going to be in this book, you know. Yeah. And um, it wasn't until several months along, I realized that you can't I don't think you can write about 
any kind of religious movement or spirituality or, you know, any of that sort of personal stuff without really diving in a bit yourself and being honest about where you're coming from. I mean, because it's a very raw thing to think about, like, what what do I believe, right? I mean, it sounds terrible to even talk about right now, <laughs> you know, in a way. Um, and I just felt like, okay, if I'm going to really be honest, I can't let myself become self-conscious. So I deliberately didn't tell even my closest friends too much about what I was experiencing. And I ended up moving to New Orleans for uh, a period of that. And so I also just like totally removed myself from my life as I knew it. And yeah, so when it came out, the funny thing was that I had really people really close to me who read the book and were like, oh, holy shit, this is what you were up to. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and after that, what's interesting is it's kind of, you know, the whole use of the first person was actually pretty freeing for me. And I then ended up feeling a lot more comfortable with sort of strategic ways to use myself and my work afterwards. But I, do, I highly doubt I'll do something that confessional again. The sort of sequence in the book actually kind of gets more intense as the book goes. Like yeah. I would say it goes from like casual paganism to pretty intense like graveyard stuff by the end. Right. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. I mean, it's very deliberate. Okay. You know, it was deliberate. I The book unfolds in some kind of version of real time. You know, I was grappling with what the book was going to become as I was writing it. And I knew that I was going to feel, on, uh, you know, instinctively on a gut level, I would just know when I had enough material, right? Yeah. Have I gone far enough? And I kept waiting for that feeling. And um, ultimately... I wanted to start broad so that it wasn't going to be intimidating to a mainstream reader and then narrow it down as I become closer to some of the people in the book and as they decide to share more with me. I mean, that's the other thing is it mirrored the process of becoming close enough with certain people that they felt that they could share with me. And uh, I knew that at a certain point it was going to have to get pretty dark because I mean, religion is about life and death. And if you don't have the dark, deathy stuff, you're not really doing your job, right? And and I think there are people who are part of any religious movement who who are, you know, who are curious with the darker side of things. Um, I know you're referring to when you mentioned the graveyard stuff. There is some material later in the book that is not representative of, like, the pagan community as a whole. But um, – that seemed fair because there are extremists, you know, within evangelical Christianity. There are extremists, you know, in Islam. And I, I thought I would show that, too. Some of this stuff is sort of adapted from previous journalism you had done or people you had met in other reporting. Is that right? Well, I think... Uh, Morpheus you had met before? Morpheus or? I'd met through the documentary, the documentary I made yeah. back in 2010. So that was yeah. a big thing. Yeah. Um, and otherwise, you know, I wrote I wrote a piece for the believer kind of deliberately as a way to flesh out, you know, what do I think about, you know, what is Satanism? And right. I and I used which is sort of like a tangential topic, but that was, uh, I, I used in part Poughkeepsie. of that. Yeah. yeah, Satan in Poughkeepsie. I, I think, think about that every time I like pass Poughkeepsie. That's like Vassar <laughs> and that story are my enti entire reference point for Poughkeepsie. I've never set foot in the city. <laughs> That's fantastic. Very good. Yeah, I actually was driving through Poughkeepsie a couple months ago with a friend who had like some literary event somewhere upstate and I was like do you want to take a quick detour and we did a little slow down drive by past the uh, Church of Satan uh, they have like a black 
Victorian house there that's their headquarters. And it's it's um I, I just think the idea that they're headquartered in Poughkeepsie versus, you know, 60 San Francisco is like totally you have to giggle a little bit at that one. The the part of the book that um surprised me the most was I was expecting this book about how modern people are sort of like imitating rituals that go back millennia. And it's really a book about like a 20th or 19th century religion. It's like one of these new ideas that's it's almost like closer to Scientology or Mormonism and sort of like what state of human history it emerged within. Oh, yeah. It's totally counterintuitive to most people. That's what was really exciting to me because what I define as the witchcraft movement or paganism in the book is a specific movement you can trace back to England in the 1950s. And you can literally pinpoint Gerald Gardner in the 50s, who's this eccentric guy who had hair like Einstein and was, you know, a retired civil servant who got really into like Rosicrucianism and uh, naturism, uh, in other words, sort of like nude sunbathing. I mean, he was this sort of eccentric counterculture guy. And he came out with a book claiming that in the woods in England, he had encountered this centuries-old coven, and these women had shared with him their secrets, and there was a, a witchcraft movement there that was alive and well. And over the next two decades, I mean, you can map it out, he then ends up influencing people who move to the States. There's a coven that opens up in Long Island secretly. There's one out in California. And then over time, you know, it becomes a legitimate underground movement here. And I found that completely amazing because now it's we're at, we're at maybe third or fourth generation of yeah. like an active pagan movement in the states now. But as a result, all of the key players, all of the all of what you would call it say like if you compared it to Christianity, all of the disciples, they're most of them are around and you know doing their thing today and the people who are then there disciples who they mentored are around and you can create a like a sort of sketchy map of all the covens across the United States. I found that totally remarkable and amazing and it's such a unique thing to have a new religious movement that you can map out that way where also the people involved in the practices are so colorful and fascinating and in some cases you know, they satisfy some of the fantasies that we have based on like Hollywood ideas of witchcraft. And in other ways, it's honestly, I just kept thinking like I was raised Catholic and now I'm, I'm I don't know what, right? <laughs> like most of the people I know, yeah. frankly. No comment. Uh, yeah, exactly. But I kept thinking, you know, this isn't any more flamboyant than Catholicism. And it, I just found that so striking. I mean, Catholic mass is so over the top. So in a way... Part of the pleasure was also kind of getting to demonstrate, like, really? Do you really think this pagan ritual is that strange? I mean, like, go and take the sacrament on Sunday at your average Catholic church, and, you know, you're drinking the blood of Christ, you're eating the body of Christ, you know, and it doesn't get any more over the top than that. I think it's more about this thing you were talking about, like the time frame of the movement, right? We sort of expect our, you know, legit religious movements to be centuries old. And something about the passage of time makes us stop questioning what the hell it's all about, right? 
And so with this movement, the fact that you could see how the donuts were made you know, yeah. on some level, it makes it easier to kind of uh, poke a stick at it. And I think it's there, there's something fascinating about that. The newness of it makes it more vulnerable to a certain amount of questioning or disrespect. Well, that's certainly like what I would have said about seeing a new religion. Um, there's a book I really like uh, about Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. It's called uh, No Man Knows My History. I have that book. I haven't read it yet. Oh, you're going right. to love it. So if you had asked me before reading your book, like, what is it like to immerse yourself in a recent subculture that is the founding grounds for a new religion. In the case of someone like Joseph Smith, it's very the warts are exposed. Like this is a former con man. Regardless of what yes. you think about what Joseph Smith wrought, a even amateur historian can widely document like very petty cons and frauds he was perpetrating before founding Mormonism. And I would say a similar thing about Scientology where I'm like, oh God, it seems really like if you can actually look right at it or right, you know, at a person who was there when it was all getting founded, it kind of ruins the a lot of the illusions. Well, a lot of things ruin the illusions around Scientology. I mean, have right. you read have you read the Lawrence Wright book? I have. Oh, yes. it's so great. It's so great. I can't believe he's still around walking and healthy and thriving because I just kept thinking, how is he getting away with writing this book? <laughs> it's I so mean, terrific. Yeah. I it's interesting to read a similar history that's basically positive and basically saying like this fills like an important role for people and not only does it fulfill an important role for people you can't fully understand it if you haven't like given yourself over at least a little bit to some like openness to it and you never get to say that about something like Scientology say so it's kind of for me it was fascinating to sort of hear you give yourself over to at least the necessary ingredients for belief here. Yeah, well, you know, it's something I write about in the book, but also it's something that connects me to a lot of stories that I pursue. Uh, it's this question of, you know, why do certain individuals subscribe to a certain belief system? Because mm -hmm. I, I really do believe that all of us run on some kind of, you know, desire for meaning. And if someone is an atheist or if they don't subscribe to an organized system – it doesn't mean that they don't crave something. Then maybe it's your job. Then maybe it's the way in which you raise your children with like a certain kind of intense focus or something. Yeah. You know, just as humans, we're built to crave meaning, right? And for me, that was something I wanted to explore about myself and also this idea that maybe this non-mainstream movement might, you know, okay, maybe there's some answer here. Like, let's be open to this possibility. Yeah, it's definitely a thread. I mean, it's funny. It's been a thread through everything I do because uh, uh, some of my first stories, you know, I, I went and I, I moved into a convent in Houston to sort of ask a similar question. You know, why why are there these young women around my age who are interested in getting married to God as they see it, right? So I wrote a story about that. And it was totally fascinating. And and the answers are often really surprising. I have a great aunt who 
was a nun like for a while in her youth oh. and then like gave it up and became like a totally partier. Like I feel like I've like never seen her without like a drink or her in her hand. And I'm like <laughs> you were a nun. And the way she talks about being a nun is like, like a phase she went through at college. You know, it's like saying like I was a goth for a while. She was like, yeah, That's I was incredible. a nun for a while. And you know, I thought I'd be a nun forever. And I was like, that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I think there was something funny when I, what was that story called? It was called The Secret Life of Nuns for the Oxford American. Actually, it was really interesting when I got there because what I discovered is that the women in their 70s now, and I don't know how old your aunt is, but... But right, 80s yeah? maybe now, yeah. So it was kind of a rebellious thing to do for that generation, Definitely. right? So a lot of them, they were telling me stories of how like, well, okay, so the deal was you went to school, and in their case, you know, they went to a Catholic school, and then the options were to either get married right away to become a secretary, to become a school teacher. And even if you got those jobs, it would only be in the short term because the ultimate goal was to get married, immediately have kids, et cetera. And these were women where a number of them, the mother superior at this convent said to me, I wanted to see the world. I wanted to go to Africa. I wanted to, you know, <laughs> I wanted to go down to the docks and do work with sex workers and help poor people and do like she just had this long list of incredible things that I'm not even brave enough to do. And she thought that the key was to become a nun. And so she was actually able to do a lot of those things, wearing the habit and the whole thing is a totally different time now. But the youngest women who I met who were more like my generation or, or even a little younger, they were really conservative. They were turned on by how radically conservative it would seem. And they were actually mourning the loss of all of the accoutrement, you know, like the wimple and the whole thing. They wanted to wear the outfit on the street as a badge of honor. And I found that really kind of counterintuitive, you know. But I think um, there are all kinds of surprises like that when you actually have an excuse, like the excuse that reporting gives you to ask people about something that's otherwise pretty intimate. When you're trying to explain, I would say in a broad sense, a lot of your writing is about subcultures. Um, when you are trying to explain a subculture, often through a few people who have their own stories, but their stories maybe aren't representative of the entire subculture. Like, what have your experience of trying to depict these very insular cultures, and what have you learned about writing about subcultures? I mean, for me, I, I should say this a little something about how I kind of come to the stories that I write about, which is yeah. that I, I work on a, in a very intuitive way in terms of the stories that I'm drawn to. I will find that, you know, the inn is maybe there's one individual who stands out to me and I start to learn about their story and I think about the community that they're a part of. Mm. Or I think it starts I think it starts with me feeling that something is very, very far away from me. Someone has put themselves, a group of people have put themselves in a situation that is so exotic to me, so alien, right, that I want to get inside of it and figure out, you know, what's there. I, I'm really drawn to the challenge of finding something kind of universally relatable within a group of people who at first glance seem extremely foreign because of the belief system that they've built their life up around, right? 
And so that's, but, but I think your question is more about, you know, technically the approach, like on a personal level. I, I think that m- most people want to share their story and they haven't had the opportunity yet, right? It's why I'm not attracted to writing about celebrities or public figures. It would be a really rare situation if I accepted that kind of assignment. I really enjoy being able to talk to people who haven't had that opportunity yet and um, who have maybe told themselves that their story should be kept private. That's mm. also really interesting, right? So so I think there's that. There's like this natural desire to tell a story, even though you're within a community that might be a bit secretive. Um, I think there is often the assumption that someone coming in is not going to be respectful, that they just don't get it. And um, I don't choose to write about any community that I don't have a genuine curiosity about. I actually really do want to know what's going on. And I I think it's super dull to write about like a religious community as if it's sort of a a freak show or that you're assuming that they're going to be extremists or you're assuming they're going to be ultra conservative or you're assuming, you know, X, Y, Z. I think there is an incredibly narrow way of reporting on and depicting religious communities in mainstream journalism. And that's part of why I wanted to make the documentary that I made, American Mystic. And it's part of what then directly, you know, led to which is America. When you're working so intuitively and you're kind of just like, I don't know, this just interests me. Does your intuition lead you to dead ends occasionally? And when your intuition is just sort of leading you to a person, how do you describe to them what it is you want when you're kind of just saying, I want to hang out with you or, you know, understand you? Like, what are the early steps when you don't exactly know what the story is going to be like? You just know that there's something interesting there. Well, with um, – so American Mystic is kind of like an interesting – Example. So that was the first. I mean, I made that before I published anything that was meaningful. And initially, you know, I was out drinking too much with this young producer I knew. And <laughs> as as things as happen happens. in early in your career, yeah. in like some really divey bar that has since been closed down in Chinatown. And he said to me, like, look, you know, I think you should really you know, I'd been at Rolling Stone as an editor and I'd a uh, very junior editor and and then at MTV News for sort of like their last moment of culture coverage. I think it's sort of the last moment they were doing subculture stuff, I think. And he was kind of sick of seeing me go into the Viacom offices and he was like, why don't you make a documentary? I, I feel like I could get some funding together. And I had nothing, but I sort of <laughs> wrote down on a cocktail napkin that I still have somewhere in like a box, I wrote American Mystic, and then under it I wrote one, two, three, right? So it was sort of this idea of like, I want to make a movie that will be about belief systems. It'll be about somehow how a kind of mysticism is still can be fundamentally American, also just a good sounding title. And one, two, three, there are going to be three storylines that will follow. There'll be three main characters. I don't know who the hell they're going to be. That's the pitch. Here we go. You know, and as silly as that sounds, you know, sort of this intuitive sense of wanting to sketch out something big about this country that was going to interrogate faith in this country in a way, hopefully, that might be a little bit different. And so I started, for lack of a better word, casting those three characters. And it involved a lot of travel over the course of maybe like six months. I kept taking like long weekends away from work. 
I sort of allowed my bosses to think that I had a West Coast romance. Like at one point, I heard them talking about it. Like, I think she's, yeah, it's getting serious. I just wouldn't say anything. I let them sort of think I had this whole relationship. Um, but um, so I, I went to a number of different communities trying to figure out. And I would say to them, look, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a filmmaker. I want to make a film that's going to show something about faith in this country that we don't typically see. And that was it. Then that was enough for people because there was this assumption, you know, I was going to groups that weren't getting a lot of coverage or they felt that they'd been covered unfairly. Um, there was one group that was this sort of neo-Christian so-called like Jesus movement group. They have like, I think, 50 different outposts around the country. And I went to one in California, like a couple of hours outside of LA. They have these orchards and they all live together and they dress almost like the Amish in a way. Um, and, you know, they they thought, oh, is this going to be a chance for us to tell some version of our story that we think is accurate? Then it's the question of whether or not the final product is ever going to reflect that. But that's, I think that's often the spark for someone on the other end. That particular group, I decided that did not work out. It was very fraught. And also I, I realized I didn't want to include in the film anyone who had any any group that had like an explicitly Christian connection. There's plenty of stuff out there about Christianity. So you write three things down on a napkin. You start taking some long weekends uh, while you're supposed to be at work, like investigating. Like, I'm just curious, like as like a first time filmmaker who's coming off a job at MTV News, like what was it like jumping into that? What was the sum experience like? Well, I should say that my background is, I think, a little unconventional for someone who, you know, does the work that I do now. Yeah. Um, so I, growing up, I sort of assumed that I would become a writer of yeah. some literary kind. I don't know. Um, that was an idea you had or was that an idea? Like, where did that an, idea come from? When I was in high school, not to go too far back. You're allowed to go ridiculous. back as far as you want. This is, this is the show for it. This is your opportunity. If you want I to go back so into free. a past life, we can do it. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, no, in high school, it was something that I, I that was a huge part of my identity. I was yeah. writing personal essays and poetry, and it's part of how I presented myself when I got into college. Where did you grow up? In New York City, in Manhattan. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, But the second I got to college, I completely dried up. I think what happened is, you know, you have this room to feel very precocious when you're a teenager. Yeah. And then suddenly you mature just a tiny bit and you realize you have nothing to say, like nothing. Right. I mean, at 18, 19, 20, I had no, I didn't really have any kind of experience or way to process that experience that was going to translate into anything. So I ended up instead after like a lot of miserable time. Like, I mean, it was really hurtful when you're a young person to suddenly feel like you have nothing, you know, this thing that you have built your identity around just yeah. evaporated. So I ended up being really attracted to the visual arts and I ended up doing a lot of uh, sculptural installation work and video art. And after college, I moved to Amsterdam in the Netherlands um, for two years on an arts grant. And I actually was this incredibly crazy time. I mean, it was this time in my life and the years right after that where I identified completely as a visual artist and you know still a lot of my friends are visual artists and it's a totally different it's such a different background that so many of the journalists who I know yeah. right and um different value system also, or like a different like your ego's like tuned to a different frequency and <laughs> you just they see the world a little differently possibly I don't know I think it's that there's a lot of 
I don't see the boundaries between different genres or media as that important. You know, for instance, I know so many writers who think it's like incredibly important to draw these hard lines between, you know, well, so-and-so is a novelist and this person is a literary journalist and this person's a whatever. And I kind of, I think the skill sets are different, but I think that there is this sort of fluidity. But anyway, so I was in Amsterdam making video art, conning famous Dutch actors into being in my video art pieces and then like drinking in the red light district late at night. I mean, it was a really incredible time. And when I got, by the time I got back, I realized that all the scenarios I've been writing out for these video pieces, I really no longer cared whether or not they were ever shot. Mm. Like it was the writing that got me excited and it sort of brought me back to wanting to write again. And then I also had to pay the rent because Manhattan is freakishly expensive, especially after this bizarre experience of having like living free for two years in Holland, which does not like there's no version of that in the United States where yeah. like an artist lives we, free. Uh, we won't be putting that uh, grand into the show notes because it press doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I don't think it does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I, I ended up desperately searching for a job and uh, a friend of a friend suggested like, well, you know, you, you've got a good college degree and you have an interest in writing and, you know, New York Magazine usually is hiring fact checkers and you should, and the thing is that they call you a reporter on the masthead and you get business cards that say reporter, which I think is kind of, you know, as an aside, I think was like a very kind trade-off for like how intensely, you know, it's an intense job fact checking (laughs) at New York Magazine. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to give this a go. And it totally was this life-changing moment. I had no experience with journalism. I didn't think of myself as a writer in those terms. I had no skill set in terms of, like, any understanding of what it means to report a story, no, like, uh, conscious understanding of how a magazine story was built. I'd written some art criticism and little things here and there, like, in Europe. And as a fact-checker there, it was back when it was – Caroline Miller was running the magazine. And so in the year and a half that I was there, it happened to overlap with Bruce Wasserstein buying the magazine and then bringing in Adam Moss. And then, like, I got to not only, like, I was in the room with all of these different incredible feature writers there and the editors, you know, just through the fact-checking process. But I also got to see there was this six-month period where Adam took over the magazine, and I was, you know, really close to the bottom of the totem pole, right, in the pecking order. But he had this incredible um, process that was open to everyone. I mean, he actually had meetings where literally everyone at the magazine was invited in, and you were filling out forms about what you thought the voice and the vision and the mission of the magazine should be. It was really incredible. So in this year and a half, I learned pretty much everything that I know today <laughs> about journalism. I mean, I'm exaggerating. Um, did that? Did your brain start sort of mapping the world into magazine journalism format? And did you start thinking about, oh, I should start pitching some stories or anything like that? Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, I one of the things about being a fact checker there, and I'm sure it's different in different places, but you know, once you were in an editor's office going over changes, it was considered acceptable to sort of let them know that you had an idea for the front of the book. And and so there was that feeling of, you know, you could kind of elbow your way into the front of the book. And then eventually, like, I pitched a, a feature. And then I was 
hired away by Rolling Stone and then, you know, continued to have great relationships in New York. Actually, one person in particular, Joanna Coles, was so generous with me. And now she's sort of the like an ubermensch at Hearst. But, uh, yeah, she was very, very generous with me and um, kind of brought me in deliberately with a few stories that were particularly fascinating or seemed like sensitive or controversial or like uh, where there would be meetings with lawyers. And so I just learned I learned a great deal. And I, I guess um, between that period and then my time at Rolling Stone and then the business of making the documentary, somewhere along the way, any fear that I'd built up about the writing process seemed to dissipate in a very specific way. Um, like the business of writing sentences, right? Like the language was so intimidating to me. I, I think I was coming from this kind of younger person's mindset of like, it's such a precious process and you have to have this craft and I don't have the experience. And somehow I, I kind of shook all that off and I thought, well, it's it's okay for me to sort of come at this my own way, right? Like a really huge revelation for me was you walk into a room and you just describe what you see. As stupid as that sounds, it was like that's what we did making the documentary. There's actually a segue there to something I wanted to talk to you about. So that idea of you mm. walk into the room and you just describe what you see. So I don't know if it's your most recent piece, but I think it's your, the Wired cover story you did, uh, Love in the Time by Android. I don't know if it was a cover story. Actually, I didn't look at the It print. was a cover story. It yeah, was yeah. a cover story. Yeah, yeah, I thought was, it was a cover story. Yes. It had the image look like the cover of a magazine. <laughs> The most, the most recent one was Breakdown Palace. Oh, the, that's right. That's Lang. right. Yeah. And then uh, because of the book, I, I haven't been publishing very yeah. frequently. So the Wired piece was the one before that. And that was like uh, a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago. Yeah. Ago. So. Right. Well, the way that story starts, or I don't know if it's the exact opening, but you're describing being on a plane to Japan to meet the um, – father of this android i don't know how oh, the creator the android designer yes the designer yeah. of, of this android and you're yeah it's a, maybe a couple sections in couple it's sections early. in yeah and you're basically describing your emotional state recent relationships that you've had and i mean a it's very personal i'm curious what your sort of experience with like putting something like that into a wired cover story but also it really like gives the reader this feeling about like what you experienced in meeting this person, like the whole thing, the feeling in the room, not just the objects in the room, but like what was going on in your brain as you arrived for this experience. So I'm curious, like once you open up that barrier, uh, what comes through it? How do editors react? Um, how do you react to like rereading yourself and sort of, reliving your own experiences once you cross the line into a story like that? Well, I I mean, I probably dissociate from like when I, you know, anything <laughs> an I've written experience. about myself because <laughs> she does. Yeah. It's, it's like that gay to lease move of like writing about himself as gay to lease. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I'm kidding. I know. I, um, one thing that was interesting is that was a very unusual choice for Wired at least in any recent incarnation of Wired, um, yeah. to publish a story that had this really strong first-person aspect to it. You know, I, my editor there, Mark Robinson, who's an incredible editor, and, like, he was a real champion of my 
approach to this story. And I just had very frank conversations with him like, look, I I need to know if this is going to be seen as a very eccentric approach, if Wired is not going to be okay with this. I There's a version of this story that is my version. And I really fought for it or I was prepared to fight really hard for it. And he kind of made it a lot easier. Was, um, was part of that rationale that this story is sort of about like the self and like the cloning of the self and the, like, yes yeah. okay yeah completely yeah i mean so i mean there, I, so there's I, a... I perceived all of that in the writing but i didn't know i'm so glad when you were selling it <laughs> them on that whether you had reached the point where you like tied all these threads together yeah there's so there's um i mean the the topic of the story had come to me basically in a one-liner like there's this man and he designs androids and he has made copies of himself and his family yep Right. As a one-liner, this is really, like, pretty dynamite. Um, and you've written about, like, the transhumanist movement before, which somehow oh, seems like true. kind of like a spiritual predecessor in a way to oh, the idea of reviving yourself in some sort of future format in which you can live again. Yes. So, yeah, about uh, FM 2030 for yeah. the believer. Um, yeah. So I basically said to Wired that, like, I'm not a technology writer. I don't have that kind of background. However, I think that that's a strength. Like, I really like parachuting in, in a way, and then bringing my own style to the situation. Hopefully that can sort of produce surprising results. But the story here was so, it had this really deep psychological dimension, which is very, very attractive to me. I mean, it's one of the number one things that attracts me to a story. If I'm going to write a portrait of someone the, you know, you have to feel like that it's an incredibly layered situation that that person's in. I mean, Hiroshi Ishiguro was so perfect. I, I Skyped with him for about yeah. an hour before agreeing to do the story. And we had such great rapport. And he was very, very open. And he also, one of the keys for me is that this was someone who approached the, you know, his design of these androids from the perspective of an artist. He called himself an artist. Mm. He did not call himself an engineer. And he kind of thought that that was sort of the work for other people to do. And he couldn't care less. And he thought it was just totally dull. So he wanted to be kind of like the Andy Warhol conceptual artist figure, right? But then there's this other piece of it, which is the work is way more intimate than I think even he wants to admit. I mean, he's making clones of himself. He makes a, the story opens actually with like the copy of his daughter that he creates when she's five years old. And so there's, I think, a more traditional way of writing that story, which is you you do sort of a more traditional profile. But all of his work is about the the recreation, the measuring and the attempt to recreate human intimacy. And so if robots are being created as a as a sort of solution for like human loneliness, then well, what does loneliness mean? And I, it just seemed unavoidable. Like it had to go into the story. So I kind of, I, I said some really revealing things about my personal life at the top. And then that kind of comes back later in the story. Was that also a tool to be allowed to include things? I mean, allowed is the wrong word, but there's discussion of his suicide attempts in the story. I think there's certainly like the implication that like, he may have not acted in his daughter's best interests in turning her into a robot. Um, are those sort of that sort of uh, emotional nakedness about yourself a counterweight to, you know, almost saying like I'm 
willing to be this open so that I can get this other person to be this open? Well, I, in general, I go in willing to be very open. I do kind of feel like there's some sort of, um, it's not a one-to-one trade, but if I'm going to ask someone about incredibly intimate things, I'm totally happy to talk about things on my end. Like I often, it's not that relevant because the dynamic becomes one where like the subject is kind of getting high off of the attention, right? And so there are a limited number of questions that I get about my life. I think that's the case, you know, with a lot of this sort of back and forth with reporting, it's really more one-sided. It feels so intimate, but really it's a one-sided relationship, right? But I, I did want to create a piece where I could give a sense of who this person was in as intimate a way as possible And he was willing to hand that to me. You know, we just developed that kind of relationship. He had been covered by the press many, many times. But it was these sort of, you know, like uh, press release type rewrites. made a robot that looks just like himself. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Well, like, I'm curious, actually, like, in the case of writing about something like that, that has been written about, like, a thousand times with no depth, but you might be the first person to, say, write an article that mentions this person's deep unyielding loneliness like how is the playing field different when a bunch of people have like trampled by briefly before this person is on their 10,000th interview about the same topic and they've also given their shtick many times before this is like a a performance of a sort so when you're coming into a situation like that how do you regard your experience with the person yeah that's a really good question I used to be really afraid of that. Mm. You know, my assumption is this is just, this is dead in the water before I show up, right? And it's why, you know, as I mentioned before, like public figures and celebrities is just not exciting to me, that sort of terrain. Although there are writers who do that really well. It's just, for me, um, not so much. Uh, I no longer feel, though, that just because someone's been written about or their work has been written about, I don't think that's what's relevant. I have confidence at this point in what my approach is, right? So my approach is going to yield something different. The question becomes more about, the, I think, the other part of your question, which is then what am I going to get, right? Mm-hmm. Like how receptive is that person going to be and is there going to be room for something else to come of this exchange? With Hiroshi, he had never spent like weeks at a stretch with someone ever. I mean, I was the first person to do that. How long were you with him? So we did two weeks and then another week later. But I mean, it was like- That's a lot of days. It's a lot. I mean, there's a sort of, uh, you know, a certain barrier has to break down. I mean, otherwise, you're honestly, if he wasn't interested, I think from the outset, he kind of held in his back pocket, obviously, the right to call the whole thing all like all right yeah. we're done day three we're done <laughs> and you're just but following him around all I these days he's like oh going to breakfast like well maybe, not maybe. at home his okay. home life was off limits and that was non-negotiable and there were things that eventually he shared with me about his personal life that yeah. was deeply off the record right and so i would just say to him like look i this isn't for the story but i don't understand what's going on and can you tell me a little more about like your personal life so I understand this mm. part of your schedule or you know certain issues that came up right was so, he weirded out when it turned out that like a lot of the story is about his weirded out's the wrong phrase but how did he react when he found out that a lot of the story was about his personal life 
or well, there's, there's personhood. A part of it. I don't know even what his inner. A lot of the stories about his inner life. His inner life, I think, is a better yeah, way of putting yeah, it. Yeah. He puts a lot of that stuff out there. I mean, yeah. I I thought first of all, the first android he ever made was a copy of his young daughter. Yeah. Right. He brought his wife into the lab to help make casting her body goes more smoothly like this was there's not really a hard line it was more this idea that like i couldn't write things about his personal life right you know he had it's like there are rules and then there's the fuzzy gray zone i almost feel like if you clone your personality and put it into an android and then take it on tour you're asking people to look at your inner life it's not like invasive to be like what's going on with you man you tried to download your brain into an android and now it's more famous than you like it's he used the word i think i even say this in the piece that you know during the time we spent together he said that he was lonely he used the word lonely or loneliness in reference to himself like maybe more than a dozen times i mean i went back through the transcripts and and it's true you know he was trying to communicate that to me for whatever reason now here's the other thing that i I think it's a sort of uh math that every writer does in nonfiction, at least you know here's a sophisticated brilliant man he's Mm -hmm. a consummate professional he's actually done a certain amount of press but he's never done press that was this sort of um immersive literary nonfiction approach like he doesn't subscribe to the new yorker right this there was no parallel for him so when i said i'm gonna follow you around and i want to write about everything anything you let me write about i just i'm just gonna observe and i'm gonna write about you i'm gonna write about the work it's gonna be totally free you know i tried to describe it but you have to assume that there's a limit to what that person is able to imagine that the end results will produce, right? So then there's sort of this ethical question, I think, on the part of the writer. All right, well, does he understand how forthcoming he's being? Because a lot of people will still somewhere in the back of their head think, well, she's only going to quote the line that I said that was this really clever line about robotics. Right. She doesn't need this stuff about how like – I'm really lonely. I couldn't sleep last night. And I, you know, I pop notos in order to get through the day. That's not related to Hiroshi, but I'm just saying that I think there's something really fascinating about that, you know, that it is kind of on you. The writer is making a decision where someone is is not totally capable of understanding what kind of material is going to go in. But anyway, I don't. He was was happy with the story to the extent that there's an essential level on which, like, you're going to have a take on this person and I just have never really heard anyone who was like comfortable with someone else's take on them like even the way like that you in the story in some ways sort of metabolize all of the previous reporting by basically like there's a, a really great turn in the story in which you know you have this basic arc of a guy who's struggling to make a android his whole life and then he ultimately succeeds and this android becomes more famous and popular than he is and sort of like uh, he's almost like envious of the android. And all of that press and all of these conference appearances are all part of that. Like all of the previous things that have been written about him and his clone are part of that narrative that leads you to this ultimate point where he's kind of like a, still a lonely person like he sort of failed in his ability to, like, make himself less lonely. 
It's really fascinating. It's definitely there's a the moment where he and he spoke so candidly about it that his creation sort of um, slipped out of his control. And right. It's this kind of classic Frankenstein as they moment. always do. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> this is the danger. Yeah. Um, you know, this is like the downside of the god complex. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, for instance, he made a mold for a silicon mold for the skin. Yeah. Right. And so the skin stretched over the robot is actually, a, you know, it's a it's a replica of what he looked like at a certain moment in time. So you can update the machinery, but that latex or whatever it right. is, is a snapshot of a certain moment in time. And a few years go by and he's still doing these talks and lectures and whatever. And he, you know, then he started to become actively concerned that he had aged past the moment at which he looked just like the android. And I I mentioned the story that, you know, he even had students commenting on this, like, you know, you look older than your copy. Yeah. And thinking that this was, you know, like a, a Which hilarious... anyone who has a press photo can empathize with. Um, <laughs> that's actually, it's a good comparison. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I will say about Hiroshi is I definitely had the feeling while I was spending time with him, he is going to be one of a tiny, tiny handful of people in my life who will just remain among the most fascinating, compelling people I will ever meet. I mean, there is no other person like him. And I think my big concern was, you know, I wanted to have a take on him and his work, but also I wanted to somehow capture that. And so I think also including myself in the story was a way to also be honest about my reactions to him. You know, he he's good at creating if he wants to, you know, this spontaneous kind of feeling of connection. And that says something about his work. But And, and also, like, at the very end, I, I try to talk about how that's also at the heart of the weird zone you end up in when you're doing this sort of immersive reporting. Yes, yes. So there's this idea, like, that's very deep in, I think, robotics and probably also in, like, paganism. So... I'll tie all the threads up Amazing. here of this like suspension of disbelief, right? If you start looking too closely at the robot, you know, or you start asking it trick questions or poking your finger around inside it, you're going to realize it's not a person and maybe not even such a skillful uh, robot. And in your article, like I feel like I got really, really deep into the creator of this robot without actually learning that much about the robot itself. Like there's a omission here that you could write a totally different article that's like from a technical perspective. Yes. Like how does the language learning work? Like yes. does it use a neural net? Like how is it trained? How big is its vocabulary? And you would go to a totally different writer for that because totally different. I, I, I would tell you yeah, it's but not for me. I wonder if like when you're researching this, do you still feel like you kind of need to like understand that? Like even though you're actually yes. writing about the lonely guy who made the super robot, do you feel like a need to almost write that phantom article that someone else would have written? Not necessarily write it, but to research it and understand everything that that person would do. And then, like, how does that affect the writing? Like, are you getting notes from an editor that's like, there's not much in here about the robot? <laughs> <laughs> I, this is, it's, I mean, the amount of research tends to be ridiculous. Right. You know, I because I'm drawn to stories that sort of contain a, a small world within them, yeah, I had to kind of catch up on 
some basic understanding of AI, of robotics, of engineering, of, uh, you know, language acquisition or, you know, it's sort of a wealth of knowledge that I think you cram into your brain and then within like probably shortly after the pub date, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it just leaks out your ears. Yeah. You know, so there's stuff that I retain, but there's a level of knowledge that I had during the time in which I was writing this. So that I think it's incredibly important. Small details then end up in the piece that I know are going to be technically accurate. But the other thing, too, is it's just about confidence. Like yep. I can't. I can't understand really what he's doing that's bold or different or weirdly informal or whatever unless I understand what sort of the traditional approach is, what the basics are. What's interesting about Hiroshi is that, you know, as I mentioned before, he's a real conceptual artist in the world of robotics. And so what he's doing is more about pointing people towards sort of – new ideas about how to approach robotics and the sort of the psychology of it and um, how small things like the number of times the android blinks are going to actually get you very far in terms of human interaction versus worrying about like, can the robot have a convincing discussion with me about like the next election, right? These are things that are small enough that a layperson can wrap their head around. So it wasn't it wasn't like I had to go in mm. and, you know, give myself a PhD. But with like um, the story about uh, Ronald Lang and Kingsley Hall, that was, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of research. And then it's, I want to understand the world, map out the world as deeply as I can, really get my hands on it so that I can then kind of like let go and feel free and not write the story that is the academic story or the technical story or, um, you know, sort of the niche story. It's always about like what is the human psychology underlying all of this? That's the story for me. You're doing these big projects that involve speculative time spent getting up to date on robotics and things like that. How do you manage your workload? And, you know, should I write a feature right now? Do I need to work on this book? How many years can I work on this book and continue paying uh, the previously alluded to exorbitant New York City rents? So um, how does that all work for you? So my assumption was that I would write books and write stories and sort of treat the stories as like a quote-unquote day job, but one that I'm very excited and lucky to be able to do. I mean, it's all kind of one big thing. Um, so I, I have this long-term relationship to, you know, now it's my second book that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. You know, the deadline is uh, like however many months away. And um, depending on how far away the deadline is, I take on, you know, a story or I don't. Um I think it's fair to say, though, that I write unusually long for, like, a typical magazine writer. Like, I, my sweet spot tends to be, like, around 12,000 words, which is sort of bizarre. But I'm not motivated the way someone who has a beat is motivated or a political writer or, like, you know, someone who's so committed to breaking news where that's part of the high. Like, for me, I want as much freedom of, as possible in terms of, like, length, in terms of um, content. I want to go really, really deep. And for me, most importantly, is is just this question of can I tell this story the way I really feel that I need to? 
I, in that sense, I do kind of look at the stuff that I do for, as more of, um, I approach it very much from like a literary perspective. I think of myself as a literary nonfiction writer. You know, sometimes I think of myself almost like an artist because this is sort of an eccentric way of coming at things. But that's my, that's my sweet spot. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you, Aaron. And that was the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our intern is Louisa Garbowit. We're brought to you by readthissummer.com, put on by MailChimp and Pitt writers at the University of Pittsburgh, our good friends. Thanks to everyone who helps make this show possible. We'll see you next week.